Earthquakes are amazing phenomena that can in minutes completely change our perception of reality. What we had counted on, trusted in, taken for granted as solid or even permanent, unshakable, is suddenly shaken apart and often never the same again. Life brings earthquake-like experiences for all of us, whether we want them or not. We cannot control that. But to some degree, what we can and must control is our reaction to them. Sometimes everything we thought we knew about God, about Jesus, and even about what's important or impressive in life gets shaken. Might there be some hidden value some hidden treasure to be gained from these oh-so-uncomfortable experiences? The answer is yes. Spoke about uncomfortable experiences. I wonder if any of you have ever had the experience that uh, you got caught in a conversation, and in the conversation, someone brings up something like, okay, if God wants people to believe in him, all he's got to do is show up and speak up. I mean, if he would just materialize or if he would just speak audibly, just show himself in a blaze of fire or whatever, uh, he could get everybody to believe in him. Everybody believe in him all at once. Maybe you've been in a conversation where somebody says something like this. Well, okay, if, if your God is almighty and all good, why does he allow evil? Why, why, why doesn't he stop it? He could stop it if he's all powerful. And if he's all good, he would want to stop it. So why doesn't he stop it? Now, if you listen carefully to what they are dealing with in those kinds of questions, and they can be very uncomfortable conversations, by the way, and maybe some of you have thought some of those same thoughts. It's okay. But the question is about God's methods. It's saying that, you know, why do you do what you're doing the way that you do it? And, and the insinuation, and this is kind of funny, the insinuation is that the person asking the question believes they could do a better job than God, okay? Even though he's the eternal, infinite creator and designer of everything that's in existence, they're saying, if I were God, I could put a stop to evil. You know, if I were God, I'd just show up in a blaze of fire. Everybody would know who I am. Every, everybody would respond to me. And so they're questioning God's methodology, and maybe you have too. You ever think about this? Supposing that... Uh, the moment, the millisecond that you put your trust in Christ and became his follower, and I hope that just described all of you. But if not, that's okay. It's a good place to be for that process. But what if the millisecond that you put your trust in Christ and became his follower, everything changed? I mean, your, your character just became instantaneously Christ-like. You were full of compassion, full of love. You never sinned again in your life. You instantaneously, your body was even transformed. It didn't matter if you ate 10,000 calories a day. You just kept getting more toned, more ripped. You were just the most handsome person, most beautiful person. You could still tell it was you, but you're just so, so pristine looking. You fill your car up with gas one time. It never needs to be filled again. You buy one set of tires. never needs it again. Matter of fact, you don't have to buy but one car. It lasts forever. Everything goes your way. You never have an accident. You never make a mistake. It's perfect. You're so distinctively different, and your life is so different than everybody else on the planet. Do you think maybe that if that's what happened to every single person that became a follower of Christ, instantly your life was kind of bubbleized and then it was just perfect, perfect, perfect? Do you think that maybe some people 
that have absolutely no interest in God whatsoever would all of a sudden start being interested. How many think that's a possibility? Oh, okay, how about, how about people that are actually antagonistic to God, but they saw that once you become this whatever this is, this Christian, this Christ follower thing, that your life just gets perfect, you get perfect. Do you think that even people that are antagonistic toward God might be interested in God? One more time. How many think that's true? So what we're saying is that if God changed his methodology, he could have more people on his team. <laughs> he just has to bribe them, that's all. He's just not bribing good enough. I mean, evidently, forgiveness of sins transformation of your character to become who you're always meant to be and do what you're always meant to do to be the Christ-like version of yourself and eternal life where your heart's desires will be fulfilled in a beautiful community of loving, sacrificially loving people devoted to the will of God, devoted to one another forever and ever where every day's a good day and the one after that is better. Than it. Evidently, that's not a good enough offer. But if God would do more right now, we get the interest of people that don't care and people that are antagonistic. We kind of agreed to that. But why would they be interested? I, I mean, let's think about it. The people that say things like, well, you know, if God wants people to believe in him, why doesn't he just show up? What, what are they really saying? Does God really want people to believe that he exists? Because that's all that would be proven by him showing up. What about the people that say, why doesn't God just stop evil instantly? Do they really know what that would entail? What if that would mean that they were taking off the planet, you know? Have they thought that thing through, what their version of evil is? Well, what if it meant that they ceased to exist on the planet? And, and, and then the people that were uninterested in God and antagonistic toward God, that if we could give them the right package, the right bribe, you know, make their life perfect right here, right now, are they really interested in Christ? Are they really interested in the will of God, the ways of God, or... Are they just interested in the best ride they can get in this life, the best deal that's being offered? Well, you know, the answers to those things, they're obvious. So in each of these cases, God's methodology is being questioned. Now, this thing of God's methodology, it's an earthquake-shaking thing. Once you understand what his, his methods are, it can shake your life up because the truth be told, many people even that have put their trust in Christ are, are his followers are confused about God's methodology. We, we don't really know how he does what he does or why he's doing what he's doing, and it can create some confusion. I'm going to introduce a man to you today that many of you will be familiar with, and he's famous in that he is only one of two men in Scripture that never died. He's alive today after all these years. He appeared alive after 800, really actually 900 years after leaving this earth alive. He appeared with Christ on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus allowed his, his inner deity to shine out through his skin. His name is Elijah. Uh, he appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses. Moses had been dead for about 1,500 years and he appeared quite alive too. But Elijah that appeared never died. In fact, some of you may want to, some other time on your own, you may want to look this portion of Scripture up. In 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11 through 13, you have the incident where Elijah, alive, is taken up into heaven, where he has been since that time. Now, the reason you might be interested in it is it gives a picture of what is going to occur with those that are alive when Christ returns the second time. 
It says that when Christ returns a second time, those that are his, those that are his followers and who are still alive will be caught up into the air by the angels and will gather with the Lord and then come back with him as his mighty uh, gathering community to rule and reign over the earth for a thousand years. But what happens with Elijah is this, is this vehicle of some sort appears in the sky. It's called a chariot of fire. You're an ancient person living in 868 B.C. The only thing you've ever seen is a chariot. This vehicle appears, and then Elijah is caught up in some kind of a vortex. It's called a whirlwind, catches him up into the heavens. Just a thought. You might want to look at that passage of Scripture by yourself. But when we meet Elijah today, this hero of God, we only know about 15 years of his life, 15 years of his ministry. We're going to be at about in the third year of his ministry and we're not going to meet him in a real good condition. Uh, he, he's not the guy that we would have picked if we were looking through biblical characters. That's the guy God's going to spare from death itself. He's going to take this guy. We wouldn't have picked this guy. Because when we find him, and I'm getting a little ahead, but you'll read the scriptures in just a minute. We find him in a, in a place of suicidal depression. Now, I'm going to pause there because I did this in the first service. And as it turned out, um, it may have been important. Any 24-hour period, any week of anybody's life, truth be told, we're pretty fragile, vulnerable creatures. And we can find ourselves in a place where we actually start to think that life has become so painful for us to be us, to go through what we have to go through, that we start feeling like it might be easier to die than it is to live. And so that's the condition we find Elijah in. Now, you're going to see there's a lot of reasons for it, a lot of reasons behind it. The main reason, though, is because he didn't understand God's methods of working. He was confused about God's methods of working. There's other things. He was physically exhausted, emotionally exhausted, maybe adrenal glands shut down, a lot of stuff. But nevertheless, uh, it can happen to any of us. Even as a Christ follower, he was God's prophet, and he got so depressed, so discouraged, that he was ready to end his life so if by chance somebody in here is like that please do tell somebody do reach out for help um, Elijah gets help he's pulled off away from the ledge from the edge and God will provide somebody for you as well okay that, that, that's a whole different thing so what are God's methods now you might be sitting there thinking I, I don't I don't know why this even matters Randy I mean I, I got bills to pay I, I got problems to solve why does it matter? It, it may matter more than you ever think. So let's dig right in. We're going to get into this passage of Scripture about Elijah. Now, I've already told you a little bit about him. His ministry lasts for 15 years. We, that's all we know about him. We're cutting in about the third year. Give you a little background. God has told Elijah that he has the power to call for rain or no rain to punish a wicked king, the seventh king of the northern kingdom named Ahab. He's married to a, a woman whose name I have never heard given to a girl. Anybody remember the name? Jezebel. Jezebel. Has anybody ever heard of a girl named Jezebel? I personally, I think it's a really cool name if she hadn't have messed it up. I mean, how many just like the ring of it? I like the ring of it, but, you know, nobody's going to name their kid Jezebel. Anyway, uh, he has called for a drought, a three-year drought on the land. God told him to do it. Elijah calls for it. And at the end of it, he shows up and he confronts Ahab. Now, Ahab and his wife Jezebel have been killing 
all, systematically killing all of the prophets of the Lord that they could find. They, they, were, they were trying to just completely extinguish them from the land. So Elijah's taking a big, you know, a big risk just to show up and uh, show himself to Ahab. So after this, Elijah tells Ahab, get all the prophets of Baal. Baal was the counter god, the idolatrous god that the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, were following at that time. He says, get them all together. Get all the prophets of Baal. We're going to have a showdown, as it were. And they build these altars. You know, Elijah builds his altar, and the prophets, the false prophets of Baal, build their altar. And Elijah says, okay, here's the challenge. If you're God, if Baal is God, call on him. Let fire come down. Consume the offering on the altar. And if he's the man, we'll all worship him. He says, however, I'm going to call on my God, the Lord, Yahweh, and if he answers with fire, then do you agree he's the real God, follow him. So it's a, it's a really tense showdown. You can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 18. Well, you know how the story ends. The prophets of Baal drive themselves nuts. No fire comes. And then Elijah calls on the Lord. The Lord lights the altar up with fire. And then Elijah challenges the people. Now that you know the Lord is God, you know, if you make a choice, serve him. And the people, yeah, yeah, we'll follow the Lord. The miracle got their attention but can a miracle change your heart gets into this thing of God's methodology we, we want to go we want to go deeper into that well Elijah then proceeds to urge the people to destroy the prophets of Baal which he does and Elijah by this time is probably on quite a high he has seen Ahab confronted and Ahab kind of buckles looks like he's going to turn to the Lord he probably assumes Jezebel his wife is going to turn to the Lord the whole kingdom is going to turn back to the Lord but what he finds next day after running 26 miles he runs from Mount Carmel to Jezreel the dude must have been in really good shape he runs 20 marathoner evidently runs 26 miles expecting expecting because he didn't understand God's methodology expecting Jezebel to be broken and to turn to the Lord. But instead, Jezebel says, you know what, my man? About this time tomorrow, you'll be as dead as all those prophets of mine that you killed. She is not moved at all. This miracle, this miraculous display, this miraculous intervention of God did not penetrate her heart one single bit. We're getting on the path of, of God's real methodology. So that's where this story now picks up. He's just gotten news that Jezebel wants to kill him and is going to kill him. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. Now, mind you, he's running because he doesn't want to die. Keep that in mind. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. By the way, just the journey from Jezreel to Beersheba, 100 miles on foot he had traveled. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might what? Wait a minute. He ran there so that Jezebel couldn't kill him, right? <laughs> but now he's under this tree, and he wants to die. Now, he's been on the run, first the marathon. Now he's gone another 100 miles. Don't know how long that took him in a state of heightened uh, you know, emo an emotional state. Adre How many of you ever heard of something called adrenal gland shutdown? Can you, yeah, you would know, of course. <laughs> uh, when we get into a heightened emotional state for a protracted period of time, what tends to happen with us is that 
all of a sudden our body just kind of shuts down it's protecting itself and we get depressed okay it doesn't mean that we stay there or sink into depression but we do get depressed it's your body trying to preserve you uh, you know and get you back up so he was physically emotionally drained but he was also very spiritually confused and discouraged because Jezebel the rest of the kingdom of Israel did not respond the way that he had hoped that they would respond so he's running to save his life but then he gets here and he wants to die you see how confused he is I have had enough Lord he says take my life I'm no better than my ancestors then he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep now if you read the rest of the story on your own it's kind of interesting uh, I, don't, I don't think I had any of the rest of the verses did Sarah okay um, go back to the other because I'll explain what happened in between so he falls asleep and the Lord sends an angel to him uh, the angel waits until he wakes up and the, the angel feeds him real angel food he, he gives him so he eats right back out of sleep again he's just drained so the angel hangs around waits he wakes up the angel feeds him again back out again he falls asleep the man is just drained and then the instructions the angel says you are to go to Mount Horeb and meet with the Lord Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai it was about 220 miles from where he was at it's the place where the Ten Commandments were given to Moses so now he's to make this journey and it says that this food whatever the angel jacked him up with it, it kept him going for 40 days and 40 nights so he makes this journey and goes all the way to to the the mount uh, of the Lord Mount Horeb so he's there now he's at Mount Horeb Mount Sinai the, the mountain of the Lord and here's what ensues the Lord said go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by then a great powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord but what does it say but the Lord was what does it say not in the wind picture this I, I can't even imagine what the speed of the wind must be a wind that is so powerful that it is ripping a mountain to shreds that's going to get your attention that's powerful that's overwhelming that's miraculous but it says very clearly what point is God trying to make the Lord was not in the wind then it says after the wind there was a what hence our series earthquake shakings <laughs> there was an earthquake but the Lord was not what not in, why does he keep trying to make this point these spectacular shocking attention getting uh, moving miraculous things but the Lord keeps saying I'm not I'm not there you, you, your mind is there but I'm not there I'm not, I'm not in the wind I'm not in the earthquake it goes on after the earthquake came a what a fire but the Lord was not where not in the fire not in the fire either and after the fire came a what a gentle whisper when Elijah heard it he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave you can read on your own the conversation that goes from there so what is the point in this whole thing God is trying to shake the foundations of Elijah concerning what God's methodology is in reaching the hearts of human beings and one of the points that he's trying to make is that God is never going to try to penetrate a human heart because he knows that you cannot through fear through force 
or through bribery. He knows that. And he's trying to get Elijah to adjust his understanding of God's methodology so that Elijah's expectations of God will change and he can get out of this depressed state that he's in and understand that God is doing something bigger than what Elijah understood. God is about reaching into human hearts that can be reached. He is not about getting people to forcibly conform to whatever immediate action he may want them to conform to. So he's, he's trying to teach Elijah, and he's doing it in a very, very dramatic way. More importantly, he's right here today trying to teach us because we get confused about this too. So let me take you now to some verses that go back to where we started. Remember we said, what if you're in one of these conversations, what are God's, what, we want to look at first, what God's methods are not. One of these conversations where somebody is saying to you um, something like, you know, if God wants people to believe in him, why doesn't he just show up? speak up you know just yell from the heavens you know show up in people's bedrooms at night whatever just just make himself known well why doesn't God do that look at this verse from Romans chapter 1 that I've shared on many occasions it says since what may be known about God is plain to them he's talking about the human race every human that's ever lived what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them how how has God it goes on for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Notice this, invisible qualities clearly seen. How can God's invisible qualities, his character, uh, everything about him, how can it be clearly seen? Well, he explains, being understood. God has given to human beings the capacity to reason, to understand, to observe and by observing things to come to conclusions God intends for us to use these God-given capacities for observation and reasoning he says being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse God's saying simply when human beings look at creation when human beings look at one another they know that there is an infinite eternal supremely superior creator and, and it's an easy thing to show I, can, I could go through a cycle of reasonings with you but, but God's simply saying I'm not going to show up in blazing fire I'm not going to prove myself to you because you already know God is saying there is no such thing as an objective atheist God, God acknowledges atheism atheism is a reality but atheism is a choice it is an individual that's looking at evidences but ignoring other evidences. And God is saying the evidence of creation itself and all the complex human life forms, if we objectively use these powers of observation and reasoning, it would lead us to a first cause, an eternal first cause that is obviously superior to the best and brightest human being that there ever has been. You would literally come just by using observation and reasoning to the conclusion that God, the creator, the eternal one, the all-powerful, the almighty, has to be like Jesus because he would be better than the best human being and evil is inferior evil lives off of good and so this being this creator would be the best person in the universe and God's saying so I'm not going to I'm not going to prove I'm not going to shock you I'm not going to show up because you already know better God works relationally I I'm getting ahead of myself let me show you another passage 
in that conversation, I said, some people might say something like, you know, why doesn't God just put a stop to evil? There's too much suffering in this world. If God's almighty and all good, why doesn't he just step in? He could stop it if he's almighty. He could stop evil. And maybe you've even pondered it, struggled with it yourself. Well, his answer is, I am going to stop evil, but not yet. I'm going to allow evil for a little while so that I can abolish it forever. I'll unpack that a, a little bit in the message. For he has set a day, he meaning God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man, meaning Jesus, he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So he's saying, I've got a day set, I've got a time, it's an exact time, it's known to God where he's going to step in and evil is going to be abolished. And that's not as easy as it may seem to be. We, we think, you know, you just kind of grab up whatever we define as evil people and that's it but it, it's more complex than that let me show you one more verse that just enforces the same thing uh, it says therefore judge nothing before the appointed time there's a time God's got a timetable he's got a plan he's got a purpose wait we are as those that trust Christ and follow him we are to wait until the Lord comes when Jesus returns for the second time that is when a real powerful death blow to evil is given. It is not the end of evil, however. It's a crippling blow to evil, but Jesus will rule and reign, as Scripture teaches in Revelation 20, over the planet for a thousand years. Those that are his followers will help out with this you know, ruling and reigning. Evil will be greatly subdued, but it won't be ended. There will be one more uprising, it says in Revelation 20. And then finally, there's the creation of a new heaven and a new earth in Revelation 21 and chapter 22. Then evil is abolished forever. There will never again be sickness, sorrow, pain, death, and all the other things that are connected with evil. So God says, I'm going to deal with evil, but I'm going to deal with it my way and not your way. I'm just curious. How many of you, uh, <laughs> when you go to the beach, you, you, you like to build sandcastles? Anybody? Can I say, let me see sandcastle people. You, you don't care about how burnt you get. You just get out there and you build some. Okay. Now, if you're, if you're kind of an everyday sandcastle person, you just need a couple cups, maybe a bucket, you know, a little plastic bucket or something like that, right? But have you ever seen these really elaborate people? They do like sand sculpting and stuff like that. These huge, elaborate. So they have all these kind of tools and they shape the sand and they do all this stuff. Nevertheless, whether you're a cup and a plastic bucket, sandcastle builder or elaborate tools how long is that sandcastle going to last it's not going to last 24 hours tide's going to come in it's gone so you need a different timetable and you need different tools if you're going to build not a sandcastle but a skyscraper if you're going to build a skyscraper, you're, you're going to need hundreds of workers. You're going to need lots of, lots of planning. You're going to need drawings. You're going to need tools. You're going to need all kinds of materials. It's going to take a lot longer than, than the most elaborate sandcastle to build a skyscraper. You're going to have to go about it in an entirely different way. God's plan and purpose is about building an eternal skyscraper made of people and relationships with those people. Therefore, his methodology right now is going to be surprisingly different from our methodology or our ideas about methodology because we want immediacy we want things to happen quickly we're not thinking big picture we're thinking sandcastle God's thinking skyscraper let, let me unpack this for you a little bit more let me show you something we can't know God's methods it is impossible to understand God's methods 
until we understand God's eternal purposes. In other words, we have to know what God is doing before we will understand how he's doing it. How he does what he does is dictated by what it is he's trying to do. Just like we said, if you want to build sandcastles, all you need is a bucket or a cup. But if you're going to build a skyscraper, you need a whole different set of tools and plans. So we've got to understand what God's eternal purpose is or we'll never understand his methods. Let, let me show you. Here it is. Here's God's big plan, his eternal purpose. God's big plan, his eternal purpose, is the development of an eternal family of Christ-like beings, angelic and human, that are transformed to the character of Christ. Christ-like beings united in loving devotion to who? To Christ. And who else? One another. Now let this sink in for a minute. This is intensely re relational. The scripture, when it's trying to depict God singularly, it says God is love. God is a relational being. His eternal purpose and plan, it is intensely relational. Meaning then that he has to use relational methodology. And relational methodology is very different than displays of power that scare people or force that control people or bribery that manipulate people. When you're talking authentic relationships, when you're talking about beings that actually love Christ and actually love one another and that are Christ-like, well, this creates a whole methodology process that's very complex. It, it means, for example, I shared something with you guys last week about what authentic worship is and authentic worship has to start with association I, I have to be around God I have to see what he's like I have to see what he believes what, what his plans what his purposes are and then if I start to be interested I might come to put my trust in God so I, it goes from association to admiration I like him I, I like the way he thinks I like what his plans are I like his purposes I like his promises and then from association and admiration it builds to affection I really do have feelings for this guy, positive feelings. I like him. I want to be involved with him. And then from there, if it goes on and becomes authentic worship, it goes on to aspiration. I not only like this God, I, I actually like him for himself, but I want to be like him. I aspire to be like him. He has so won my trust. He has so won my heart that I, I live every day of my life. I want to grow to be a little bit more like him. This is, this is very spontaneous relational stuff. How many of you know you cannot, you cannot force somebody to like you? How many have tried in vain? <laughs> I have. How many of you know you can't force somebody to love you? That's even harder, right? It doesn't matter what you do. Some people are never going to like you, never going to love you. How many have lived long enough to accept that? Try as you will. There are some people that are never going to like you, never going to love you how, how many know that to be true you'll save yourself a lot of grief if you accept that okay and who wants to bribe somebody you know what i'm saying i i i feel sorry for these really really beautiful handsome wealthy super wealthy billionaire um successful talented people you know they can sing so much that people throw billions of dollars at them buying their cds and all that. i feel sorry for these celebrities because it's really hard unless somebody uh, became bonded to them when they were broke <laughs> and infamous you know they don't ever know that the person loves them for themselves they can't 
they can't ever know that they, they always got to be a little bit tormented what would happen if I lost all my money or my looks or my talent you can't win somebody over by offering them stuff so this eternal purpose of God it's intensely it's intensely relational which means God has to reveal himself as he is he has to say here's who I am here's what my plans are here's my purposes here's what I promise here's what I offer here's what I won't do and I'm going to take it to the highest level I'm going to tell you I love you with a sacrificial love nobody understands you like I do I designed you nobody wants your best your happiness more than I do nobody knows what is best for you better than I know what's best I love you vulnerably you may spit at me you may drive spikes in my hands you may reject me you may use my name as a cuss word I still love you but I won't force you. I won't, I won't take a wind and rip the rocks out of your life. I won't use an earthquake to shake you to run to me in fear. I, I won't start a blazing fire to make you run to escape. I'm going to whisper, and you're either going to like me and trust me, or you're not. But that gets right to the core of my being. You've now truly won my heart you can't do that with methodology that is fear and force and bribery based the exterior Elijah was all confused he thought all the miracles you know killing the prophets of Baal bringing the fire down he thought that was going to turn all the Israelites Jezebel included to fall on their knees and, and follow after God no way that's not how it works it's not it, it's an authentic relational thing it, it takes time it takes self-revelation it takes trust so let me go back so once we know his eternal purposes that they're intensely relational to have this loving family of Christ-like beings who truly from their hearts love God, love righteousness, love his ways, love his will, love his word, then the methods become more clear. He has to deal with people in an authentic relational way. He can't scare them, he can't force them, and he cannot bribe them because that destroys any possibility of authentic relationship then that helps us to have appropriate expectations. Elijah wouldn't have been so suicidally depressed had he not had erroneous expectations. He didn't understand God's methods. He, he thought their hearts would be changed through the spectacular miracle. You don't change people's hearts through miracles. Miracles can get people's attention. That's the best that they can do. And so if he would have adjusted to God's methods he would have had expectations he would not have been discouraged that Jezebel wanted to kill him he would have not been shocked that all the Israelites weren't turning to God he would have continued to serve God with the same kind of confidence knowing that some will some won't some will reject God no matter what some will open their hearts reality and then that leads to effective cooperation most of us in this room that have put our trust in Christ and are his followers we want so much to cooperate with God. We want to see his work done in this church, through this church, in the world, in other people's lives. We want to find what is my role? What, what gifts have you given me? What experiences? What capacities? What opportunities? What can I do to help God? I want to cooperate. I know you want what is best for people. I want to be a part of that. But if we don't know, if we don't know God's methods, we might think we're cooperating with God and might actually be working against God let me give you an example two examples story happened in my life I hope I don't make anybody mad um, 
my first pastor, I, I, I became a follower of Christ at age 23. My first pastor was this guy named Roy Stewart. He, he took me under wing, was a mentor, wonderful man. And I was about 24 or 25, and he told me one day, he said, uh, I'm going to take you, Randy, I'm going to take you to Pastor Diffie. Brother, called him Brother Diffie. It was Independent Baptist. Everybody was brother. He said, I'm going to take you to Brother Diffie's church tonight uh, and let you hear Brother Diffie preach. And I'm like, Roy, that's what you think is good? That's, that's good with me. So he takes me, <laughs> he takes me to Brother Diffie's church. So it, it was small. I mean, the room was small. And it was probably on about 25 or 30. It was in the, Brother Diffie had a small church down in PG County at the time. So I'm sitting there. I'm waiting. I'm eager, you, you know, to hear what's going to come down because Pastor Roy took me there. And so <laughs> Brother Diffie, Pastor Diffie, he gets up. And the first thing I noticed, it, it looked like a squirrel or something on his head. It, but it was just a cheap toupee is what it was. Now, <laughs> now mind you, you, you got to bear with me. I'm a young street dude, man. I, I came off, I had only been off the streets for about a year or two years. I, I mean, so I'm fighting down laughing, you know, and I'm like, nevertheless, Brother Diffie, do your thing, you know. Brother Diffie, this is no kidding, this is what he, what he proceeded to say. I'm going to give you tonight a sermon that has won to me more souls than any other sermon. Think about what he just said. Won to me more I, I don't want you winning me to you I, I want to be one to Jesus so that was the first problem and I, and I was a quick learner I was already kind of uncomfortable with that so I'm like okay but nevertheless Roy brought me here it's got to be okay well brother Diffie started brother Diffie says a little bit about heaven and then he shifts to the subject of hell and my man railed on about hell for who knows how long I mean it felt like hell to me <laughs> <laughs> to, to, be, to be there you, you know what it feels like to have a match Hold it in your hand for just 15 seconds Endure that for 10,000 years And you're just beginning <laughs> He was one of those kind of guys That's what hell is like That's what it'll be like blah, blah, blah. And he went on and on and on and on Virtually nothing about Jesus Kid you not Till the very end Now Jesus died on that cross so that you don't have to go to that burning hell forever. <laughs> and and, and I'm, I'm being funny because it's tragic. Um, he thought he was cooperating with God, okay, trying to, in his mind, get people to heaven. He thought that's what God's main objective was, to get people to heaven. You've got, got to get them in the transportation system, not the transformation system. God's about transforming us, not transporting us. He only transports who he transforms. But Diffie didn't understand that. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Now, here's the thing. Unless Christ is the center of our message, it's the wrong message. He was just saying... He was trying, I'm, I'm going to say this correctly, he was trying to scare people out of hell or from going to hell. The choice that he was giving people was burn forever and ever and ever or go to this wonderful place called heaven. Jesus had about this much in the whole conversation. Look at this verse that shows how off that was. Romans 10, 14. It says, how can they call on someone if they haven't trusted in who? him not what he's offering not what he's done him and how can they trust in someone if they haven't what 
heard about him. See, when we're presenting God's truth to people, it needs to center in Christ. They need to know who he is. They need to know what he did. They need to know about his miracles. They need to know about his teaching. They need to know about his sacrificial death because he loves us that much. They need to know about his powerful resurrection. They need to know about Christ. And so if we're trying to cooperate with God, we have to understand his methods. You see, this is an intensely relational message. It's about now that you know who God is as he's revealed himself in Christ, do you like him? Are you interested? Are you ready to trust him and become his follower? It's relational, intensely relational. And we can get so mis, you know, misconstrued with, with the methodology then instead of cooperating with God, we work against God. There's a lot of Christians that, that really think uh, if God did miracles every day, spectacular miracles, we just see multitudes, multitudes brought into the kingdom. No, you wouldn't. All, all those people that Jesus did the miracles for in, in, you know, during his ministry, thousands and thousands, thousands of recipients of miracles. When he was on the cross, who came? Look it up on your own. There were very few very few miracles can get our attention they cannot win the heart god's methodology is to reveal himself to reveal his love to reveal his plans his purposes his promises and then he literally waits humbly and he says do you like me do you like my plans i love you but it's up to you will you trust me will you follow me do you like my will and my ways we must understand God's methods or we can end up not cooperating with him and we'll be confused with our expectations. We'll, we'll want things and not get them and we'll get things and not want them because we're all confused about God's um, methodology. All right, so we've looked at now what God's methods are not. Let, let's turn a corner. What God's methods are, and I've kind of given you this, but I'm gonna go quickly through this last part. Let's look at a passage of scripture. Acts 17, 27. If you see the way it starts, it's a little awkward. It says, God did this. And you're like, well, that's connected to something. Yes, it is. If you read the verse before it, verse 26, it talks about God establishing national borders, nations. Nations, national borders are God's plan and intention. And he put us in nations. He separated us. And now he's going to explain why. God did this, separated us in nations. You read it on your own in the 26th verse of Acts sometime on your own. God did this so that they would do what? Seek him. He puts us in these separate nations because there's a better chance that we'll seek him. He knows us. And perhaps what else? Reach out for him. Not just seek him, but reach out for him. And ultimately what? Find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. God's methodology is he reveals himself in nature. We know he's there. We know he, he exists. He gives his word to us. We're the first generation really to have such access to his word. But then he waits. And he waits to see if we're interested, if we'll seek him. It's relational. It's relationally intense, God's eternal plan. So he says, I'm here. I'm right here, always present. But he waits until we seek him and reach out for him and find him god wants to be found listen this is not mysterious all of us want to be liked we want to be loved for ourselves. we all want to be wanted we don't want to have to scare somebody we don't want to have to force somebody we don't want to have to bribe somebody we want to be liked we want to be loved we want to be wanted 
for ourselves, relational, relational stuff. That's what love is about. And God is no different. That is his methodology. That is his plan of working. That's how he actually works. Let me go on. Isaiah 48, lo love these passages that are coming up. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God. Okay, that's established. I am the Lord your God who teaches you, what does it say? What is best for you. Now, teaching is a relational con context. Um, you know, um, I'm going to just be straight. A lot of my years in school, I didn't pay any attention to what the teachers were teaching. I did not pay attention. So to be taught, you have to be teachable. You have to trust in your teacher, want to know what your teacher's teaching. So God says, here it is. It's relational again. What's God's methodology? I I I'm going to share my truth with you, God says, and I'm going to teach you. I'm going to teach you what is best for you. Now, what is best for me, I have found, is not always what I often immediately want. How many of you have learned that lesson? That what I want is not always what's best for me. I, I, I've sometimes gotten what I want, and then I don't want what I got. Right? How many know that lesson? Okay. So God says things sometimes that initially I may not even like. But he's teaching me what is best for me because he loves me. He created me. He designed me. He knows me better than I know myself. He knows what's good for me and wants what's best for me, but it's all going to be relational. I'm going to teach you, but you don't have to listen. You don't have to pay attention. So I'm going to teach you what is best, who directs you in the way you should go. God says, I'm going to tell you, don't go down that path. Don't. Just don't. don't, don't. I don't care if everybody's going down that path. Don't you. I'm going to show you what's best for you. Go down that path. But you don't have to take my direction. It's relational. And most of us have to go down a lot of dead-end streets before we finally start saying, okay, show me the path. <laughs> it goes on. If only. This is, this is weird. We humans say if only all the time. We say, oh, man, if only my tire hadn't gone flat. You know, or if only you know, that person would have treated me fairer. But here's God actually saying if only. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river. Your, what does it say? Well-being, well best life possible in this tough old world. Your well-being, best life possible. Would have been like the waves of the sea. The waves never stop. They just keep rolling, man. They just keep rolling. He says, you, you, he says if only, if only you would have listened. Relational. That's God's methodology. He doesn't force himself. He doesn't use fear. He doesn't use bribery. He speaks the truth in love. Let me show you another. The Lord says, I will guide you. This is the final one, and th this really makes the point pretty powerfully. The Lord says, I will guide you along what? The best, the best pathway. How many times have you ever heard a human being say, man, all I want to do is be happy. I'm not asking for a whole lot. I just want to be happy. How many have heard people say that? Well, God's word is littered with this stuff. It's everywhere you look. I'm trying to give you the best life possible, to put you on the best path in all of life's options. Here's God saying, along the best pathway for your what? Life. life. But how's this going to work, God? I will. How many have ever had people give you good advice that you didn't take? 
I've learned most things the hard way. I really have. I'm, I'm sincere. I don't know why I'm so doggone hard-headed. I will advise you and watch over you. I love this last one. Do not be like a senseless what? It was not meant to insult horses. Mr. Ed is a sharp guy. I know that. Some of you are like, who's Mr. Ed? You have to live long and watch old TV shows. <laughs> Do not be like a senseless horse or a mule that needs a bit and a bridle to keep it under what? Control. Control. God's talking relational again. He's saying, look, I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to jump all up in your, your grill and shake you and scare you and I'm not going to bribe you either, God's saying. He's saying, I'm telling you, I, I'm going to show you who I am. I love you so much here. I'm going to this cross. I'm going to let you spit at me. I'm going to let you make fun of me. I'm going to let you drive nails in my hand. And I am not going to come down off this cross. I am actually going to enter into death itself to let you know how completely committed to you I am. I love you. You can trust me. I cannot do anything else to prove my love or my trust than this. Yeah, amen. But then he waits to see if we respond. So this is God's actual methodology. The Lord was not in, it says, the wind that shattered the rocks. The Lord was not in the earthquake that shook the whole mountain. The Lord was not in the fire. And then came a gentle whisper, and now it's the Lord. That's his methodology. I'm going to close with an with illustration that I hope will help you uh, have it sealed in your heart. Picture yourself. You're, you're at a soccer game. Maybe it's for your kids. Maybe your brother, sister, something like that. But you're at the soccer field, and um, you notice a friend of yours on the opposite team. They're, they're on the opposite side of the, the, the field. They're maybe 50 yards away from you. And your friend sees you, and they, they, they wave and everything, but now they're trying to talk to you. They're, they're shouting across the field, 50 yards. And you're like, I, I, can't, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. So you're, you're waving them on. Come closer. So the friend starts walking. You know, they're, they're coming around, but they're talking the whole time. They're still shouting. And you're like, I'm telling you, I can't hear you. I don't that you come on. Come. So you're waving them on. And finally... They get right up in your face, but the crowd noise is, is so distracting. How many of you have trouble hearing people sometimes, even when they're close to you, when there's crowd noise? Yeah, as you get older, it's really bad. I, I have it pretty bad. Um, so anyway, your friend is right in front of you, but you're, you're still like, I, and you, you tell your friend, whisper. And your friend, because it's your friend, you let that friend get close. And you want the friend to be close. You want to know what the friend has to say. You're interested. And when the friend whispers in your ear, you've all experienced this, you feel the heat of their breath on your ear, right? The Lord was not in the wind. He was not in the earthquake. He was not in the fire. He was in the whisper. The way that God reaches into the deepest part of our hearts and our lives and transforms us forever. The way that he carries out his work on planet earth is through people that get so close to him and stay so close to him that they regularly feel the warmth of his breath on their ear.
You say, Randy, what are you talking about, man? How, how, how do you do that? In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says that all Scripture is inspired by God. The word that's used there, it, it, it literally means God breathed. When we go to God's Word with openness and eagerness and we're seeking Him and we want Him and we want His will and we want His ways and we're ready to act on whatever we find there, the very breath of God right there he doesn't want to have to yell at us he doesn't want to have to scare us he doesn't want to force us he won't he doesn't want to bribe us either he carries out his work his methodology is to find people who will get close enough to let him just whisper he's not going to write in the sky he's not going to give you a sign the sign was Jesus that's enough signs for any of us so maybe this morning Maybe the big thing for you is that all your life you've been kind of confused about this God in general and much less his methodologies. I hope you're clear about one thing. He loves you. He's for you. He wants you. He's made himself vulnerable. You can reject him today and for the rest of your life. And he'll still bless you the best that he can. It's hard for him to bless us when we don't do his will. But he'll still but maybe today, for the first time, some of you, you're sensing, you know, I think, I think God really is good, and, and He wants what's best for me, and I don't know what the heck I'm doing, really, truly. I just follow my desires, and I do all kind of stuff. And Randy, I, I, think, I think I'm done, man. I think, I think I hear what you're saying. Today, I am going to put my trust in Christ. I don't really care what anybody else does. He has won my heart. If, he, if he's smart enough to create this universe and loves me enough to die on the cross for me and my sin, I'm ready to follow him. Everybody's following somebody, following herself, following some other human. Today, today's the day, I mean business, Randy. I'm putting my trust in Christ. I'm going to follow him fully. I'm going to follow him freely. I'm going to follow him forever. This is the day they can write my name down in the book of life because nothing will turn me back. He's won my trust. Maybe today, maybe today, that's going to happen for somebody in here. Maybe the rest of us, we, we needed this adjustment. We, we've been fixating on things about God, and sometimes we get angry at Him because our expectations are frustrated. We're expecting things for Him to do that He's not going to do. We're expecting Him to do things in ways that He's not going to utilize. And, and maybe now we understand, oh, I got discouraged and I got depressed and I got angry at God because I didn't really understand his methods. I, didn't, I, I was fixated on sandcastle life and he's building skyscrapers for eternity. I get it now. I get it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk out of here different, Randy. I'm going to walk out of here with some understanding of God's methods and it's going to help me cooperate with him because he works relationally and I'm going to be his relational agent to others. I'm going to speak the truth in love for the rest of my life. Man, I just know God's doing something today. Uh, felt it in the first service, feel it again in this one. And uh, I don't know. Maybe you've been resisting the closeness of God's whisper for a long time in actuality. Uh, I hope this will be the day the walls fall. Let's pray. Father, we are just so grateful that you made us 
for yourself with an eternal dream in your heart for our good. Thank you that we can at least know someone eternally loved us, sacrificially loved us, someone always wanted us, always will. May your spirit have its way in each of our hearts and lives today. It's in Christ's name I ask it. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.